You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. We just thought that Richard Stanley doing Island of Dr. Moreau was one of the most exciting projects we'd heard of in a while. This is going to be a huge project, and this is going to propel Richard Stanley into the superstardom that he deserves as an auteur. It was a script we were extremely confident in that we thought would be some sort of milestone in the genre. New Line tried in different ways to contain the material. I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about the project, frankly. It was some lunatic movie that's known as one of the worst films ever made. Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer were there to mess with the film as much as possible. I've dealt with some very, very difficult actors in my life, but I have never ever dealt with somebody like Marlon Brando. He wanted an ice bucket on top of his head. He'd covered himself in white paint. I think that's how the whole mini-me thing developed, of Marlon adopting this little guy. It doesn't matter who directs it. It's not, it's not, it's not about the vision, it's, a, you know, it's about the stars. Did you hear about, oh my God, the, the Richard Stanley climbed into a tree today, it wouldn't come down. He was living and breathing Moreau, and then literally just had that murdered. I think he probably went a bit mad. I think once that rumour started that Richard Stanley was in the background, that I think that just grew into Richard Stanley then wanting to sabotage the shoot. As it went on, it descended into more and more kind of madness. I knew that this was going to be totally insane and that we were going to be hugely lucky if we just finished a film with a beginning, a middle and an end. Knowing that the odds were stacked against me, I resorted to witchcraft. I've often wondered what happened to Richard Stanley. Hi everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perón and today we have a super fun show for you guys. I am going to review two very weird different films. This is going to be a super, super spoiler heavy subject we're going to talk about. One film is the documentary Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau, an insane documentary about the almost making of a film and then the making of another version of that film that is just insane. The, you know, the bizarre things that happened trying to get this film made and eventually how it came out. Then I'm going to review Darren Aronofsky's mother. Uh, no pun intended. I'm not reviewing his mother. I am reviewing his film mother that was out 
believe it was out last year. Really, really weird film. One of these films that kind of sticks to you and just does not let go, and it's a very uncomfortable film, uh, but it's a very smart film. You know, it makes you think, it makes you work. It's definitely a, 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 a controversial film. And then we're going to lighten things up a little bit by reviewing the 12-inch Indiana Jones doll that came out back in the early 80s from Kenner. A complete holy grail kind of item that I got in my hands on finally after all these years. And I am so excited about it because this is one of those last, you know, toys that I've been trying to get back into my collection after losing them so many years ago. So this is a great, great acquisition, if you will. So let's begin with Lost Soul. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The force will be with you, always. Today we're going to examine two films that are very, very different that I just recently had a chance to watch. One of them is the documentary Lost Souls, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. And the other one is Darren Aronofsky's film called Mother. Again, these are very different films. Uh, let's start with Lost Souls. For a while now... Here or there, I've been seeing some articles, some of them are pretty old because this movie came out in 2014, about this documentary that came out about the making of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Now, The Island of Dr. Moreau had been made a number of times. Some of them were older versions, black and white type of things that I have never even seen. But I do remember there was like a late 70s version, I believe. Which I don't remember if I ever saw it completely. I barely remember it. But I kind of understood, you know, what the theme was. There's like a mad scientist performing these weird experiments in an island that kind of seems to be changing people into animals. And he's becoming kind of like their leader, their god or something like that. Well, in 1996, uh, so this would have been after I finished college, there was a new version of The Island of Dr. Moreau. But this time it had... Marlon Brando as the doctor and Val Kilmer as the hero, let's say. <laughs> and this was a bizarre period because this was a period where Marlon Brando had kind of come out of his shell that he was hiding for years and all of a sudden started doing some films. Granted, some of them were horrible films and some of them were okay kind of films. But, um, you know, all of a sudden he was available and people started, you know, booking him for movies. Val Kilmer, on the other hand, had come off of The Doors, so he was, uh, you know, pretty much on fire as far as the height of his career, and I believe after that he had, I think, one of the Batman films. So he was, uh, you know, a guy that was trying to maintain his uh, star power. And I'm sure the idea alone of being able to be in a movie with Marlon Brando is something that everybody gravitated towards. However, 
before we got that film, and I've seen that film uh, in, 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 on video probably or cable, and it is a pretty bizarre, bad film, like a bad horror film. A lot of it, from what I remember initially, before seeing this documentary, had to do with Marlon Brando. It seemed as if he was just completely out of his mind in terms of how he would behave and he would act. And later you would find out the type of things that he would demand and change. And he would get because he was Marlon Brando. He was the actor's actor and anything he wanted, he would get. So anyway... Over the last couple of years, I've been hearing about this documentary. I'm like, well, the making, what's the deal? You know, what's the deal here? What's what's going on here? Well, this documentary uh, features the story of how this film got made, how this film got started. And it all kind of starts with Richard Stanley, a director that probably most people haven't heard of. The way that I'm familiar with Richard Stanley is because back in 1990, I saw a movie. This is back when I was in college. And I remember seeing it with a couple of friends, and even I think my my wife was there too at the time, my girlfriend, uh, called Hardware. And Hardware was a low-budget sci-fi film that was kind of like a sleeper almost hit, like a culty kind of flick. Even though it just premiered, I don't know if you can call it a cult kind of film. It became more of a cult kind of film. But the thing about it was that it featured this robot that uh, kind of goes crazy and starts killing people or something like that, which is something, you know, that's right up my alley. And it's very futuristic, and it's like uh, bounty hunters and robots, and there's a girl that's the heroine, more or less, and the robot's after the girl. And it was a very different kind of film, like I said, very low budget. And this was around the time where they were calling it kind of like the next evolution of the Terminator in terms of, oh, I see. It's kind of like a, a, another entry into the Killer Robot series. And it had a very low budget feel, uh, almost kind of music video feel. And ironically, the, our, the show that we do, one of the songs is the one, this is what you want, this is what you get, which we use during the opening of the show and throughout our show. That's where that song was used throughout the movie, and it kind of stuck in my head all this time. <laughs> it was a very bizarre song. The actual song is by Public Image Limited, and it's called The Order of Death. And this is which one, this is what you get. It's the chorus on the song, which goes through the whole song. But anyway, that that's, I remember that being very memorable, and so I would always associate that song with that film, and it kind of stuck in the back of my head. Granted, you know, the film wasn't anything out of this world in terms of, oh my God, it's changed my life or anything, but it was an interesting little side note, you know, in science fiction that somebody would be able to kind of pull this off, you know, a very low-budget film. And on the documentary, they explain to you how this director, after making this film, made another film... I would say not as successful, but by the time he was going for his third round, he was going to get involved with a studio, and they was kind of still a, somewhat of a hot commodity. He was kind of like an up-and-coming director. I would kind of compare him a little bit to maybe Phil Jeannot, if you guys remember from the early 90s. This was this, again, a uh, hot commodity, up-and-coming young guy. He was supposed to be like a protege of Steven Spielberg or something like that. And he had done, uh, there was a movie called Three O'Clock High, which I love. Then there was Rattle and Hum, the documentary of uh, U2, the concert documentary. And then he did State of Grace with Gary Oldman and Sean Penn and Ed Harris. 
which, you know, at the time, you would figure that after this, this guy would just skyrocket to stardom, but kind of faded away into obscurity, more or less. Well, this director had a similar experience. He got involved with the studio production. He wanted to remake The Island of Dr. Moreau. Now, you also have to remember that as you watch this documentary, you get to learn that this guy was kind of eccentric. He was different. He had what you would call these days branding. <laughs> he had a different kind of personality. He would dress different. He would talk different than everybody else. So people kind of like, whoa, what's, what's with this guy? He was not the type of person that kind of blends into the background. He kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. And he had some pretty wacky ideas that people were willing to go along with in terms of what he envisioned for this film to be. The documentary goes through the entire process of all the pre-production work that he did in terms of scouting all the locations and working with artists to start putting together, you know, all the pre-production elements of the film in terms of what the creatures are going to look like, you know, everything like that. The studio that was behind it all was New Line Cinema. And at the time, New Line Cinema was a studio on the verge of transitioning to a major studio or a potentially major studio. You know, they have done pretty successful work with low-budget horror films and somewhat exploitation-y kind of films, if you will, similar to, like, Canon uh, another company that would kind of capitalize on that kind of stuff. Well, New Line Cinema, you know, they had the Freddy Krueger films and stuff like that. So all of a sudden, they were starting to kind of play with the big boys. So they were they were actually, you know, investing some serious dough into something a little more upscale, if you will. And they did have access to young, you know, cheap, if you will, uh, talent that the, then they could combine, you know, with, with a cast of actual, you know, professional actors, you know, more recognizable, bankable actors. So at one point, they talk about how the casting process starts to get a little wacky. Somehow, Marlon Brando becomes available. Now, during the writing of the film and even the history of the story of the island of Dr. Moreau, had this bizarre connection to the writer of Hearts of Darkness, the original <laughs> connection uh, about that uh, boat ride upriver or downriver uh, where the, the captain kind of goes mad and, you know, it's kind of like a very strange story that ended up turning into more or less Apocalypse Now, which was one of these huge, huge, huge Marlon Brando vehicles. Francis Ford Coppola did uh, directed it, obviously, but he also did a documentary about the making of Apocalypse Cold Hearts of Darkness. So there's always been this connection between, apparently, H.G. Wells and the writer of Hearts of Darkness and how they kind of fell apart, you know, because they were either competing or arguing over stuff. But it was kind of some kind of weird connection that all of a sudden now the star of Apocalypse Now is going to get involved in an H.G. Wells story, uh, you know, which it seemed odd, you know, like kind of weird. On the good side, like, it's like well, this, this must be a sign of something good. <laughs> Little did they know. But you know, the studio all of a sudden has a chance to grab Marlon Brando. And uh, Stanley, uh, his original intent was to get Bruce Willis to play the lead. 
the younger, the younger, <laughs> you know, not not the doctor, but the lead, you know, the, the the star of the film. But something went wrong, and they couldn't get him because I think he mentioned something about Bruce Willis's started to go through his divorce at the time, so he had to bail out of the film. He had to work in the states, couldn't work overseas because of tax reasons or some weird divorce-related thing. So then the idea came of bringing Val Kilmer into the film. The problem was to have him as the lead, you know, to, to be able to take the Bruce Willis role was that he demanded something like 40% of the script be cut. And this drove Stanley insane. You know, the fact that how could this guy demand that I change my character because he doesn't want to work as much. So the film would have been Bruce Willis as the lead male uh, star of the film, Marlon Brando as the the doctor, the mad doctor, and James Woods as the secondary, smaller role, you know, male lead. This was Stanley's original dream cast, let's say. This is what he wanted to work with. When Bruce Willis went away, they brought in Val Kilmer. Now, Val Kilmer, as I mentioned earlier, you know, he was another hot-headed, dem overly demanding type of individual, and he demanded that they cut his role by 40%. He didn't want to do as many lines, I guess, or work as much. So that the way that they figured that out was they, okay, they made him the secondary character, so he had less lines and he would still be in the film, but now they had to fill the main character's role, and they hired Rob Murrow, which I remember from Northern Exposure, and I believe the show Numbers he used to be in. This would have been his leading star vehicle again again you know co-starring with marlon brando everybody wants to co-star with marlon brando no matter if it's a horrible it's almost like woody allen everybody wants to be with woody allen even if it's a horrible film just to say they work with woody allen now the documentary also chronicles how the beginning of the production was a disaster marlon brando's daughter apparently died earlier around that time which kind of sent him spiraling emotionally all over the place he was already a very emotionally unstable individual and now he was way out of whack with everybody he would uh, miss crew calls he didn't show up to the actual beginning of the shoot until a week after the shoot had started there was all these quirks they had to work around him at the same time the studio uh, was kind of um, falling out of love, I guess, with Richard Stanley. They didn't like the way he worked. They didn't like the way he behaved and that sort of thing, which you could say it's artistic, kind of like an artistic behavior, or you could, you know, depending on whose side you're on of the story. Some people would say that he was very insular. He liked to work alone, locked in a room, and then would come out and meet with people. But then he would just kind of go back instead of kind of putting yourself out there. It was not what the traditional studios were used to in traditional crews. He would do things different, you know, more of an independent tradition, if you will, you know, if you want to call it that. So the problems just kept happening and happening. But like I said, the studio just did not have that much confidence in him. As a matter of fact, when they first were putting the movie together and when he was told by the studio that Marlon Brando was going to be involved in it, you know, he went to Marlon Brando and pitched, you know, his version of what the story would be like, afraid that Marlon Brando was just going to kind of shoo him away because the studio, again, wasn't that hot about working with him because they have gotten their hands on Marlon Brando, but somehow Marlon Brando kind of liked his idea of what the movie was going to be like. Uh, you got to remember, Marlon Brando is, was 
kind of out there to begin with. So it was just luck that these two kind of clicked, you know, when the movie was being put together. So in a way, the studio kind of had to make the movie with him, even though they didn't really want to, because of the fact that Marlon Brando, just out of the blue, started siding with him, you know, in terms of saying, I want this director, so they had to do whatever Marlon wanted. Well, by the time they started to shoot and it was ready to go, they got hit with this huge storm and a lot of the sets were washed away and they were really, really having serious problems getting started. And the friction between Stanley and the producers came to a head to the point where the producers said, all right, that's it. We're going to have to fire him. This isn't working out. And even some of the stars of the film started to complain about Stanley to the producers. Now, again, it's hard to see whose side you're going to take on this argument. You know, in the documentary, it kind of makes it look as if it was just so many problems happening that one person had to be responsible for those problems, and that was the director. But the backstory is also that the fact that you're dealing with very unusual prima donnas for stars to begin with, especially with Kilmer, and then, you know, later, you know, with the antics of Marlon Brando. So they pull the plug on him, and they bring in a ringer director to now direct this movie, you know, that had already kind of started with a different director. So Stanley is completely shattered. He is told to leave the set. He is told that, you know, as part of his uh, agreement to leave, you know, he's going to get some kind of severance, I imagine, but on the condition that he does not, he has to stay within 40, I think 40 yards away from anywhere the production that's taken place because he didn't really, really leave the country. He kind of stayed behind. He kind of almost faked his departure so he could stay nearby. So the documentary then kind of shifts over to the production of the film that it is more documented uh, because that is the final film that we end up with. And Frankenheimer is a completely different kind of director. He's like one of these last old school Hollywood directors. He had a reputation, you know, he was a pretty well-known director, but he also had a reputation for being brought in to kind of uh, fix films that were falling apart, to get them finished at least. So he off the bat also started to have all kinds of issues with the actors and even with Marlon Brando, he started to having serious, serious issues too. You know, Marlon Brando pretty much takes over the picture. He's doing all kinds of weird, weird stuff where he, you know, traditionally he doesn't remember any of his lines. Comes, he shows up wearing this weird white makeup and they all kind of have to go along with it because it was his interpretation of the character. He takes role, he takes a lot of the important parts, uh, and reassigns them to other actors. He has this little person that was brought in, which was kind of like a freak show kind of thing that was going on in the island. Um, and he kind of became very friendly with this little actor. And he started giving him all the lines of a previous actor, or at least all the screen time. And the studio has to go along with it. And Frankenheimer has to go along with it. Then there's issues where, you know, Kilmer doesn't feel like he should come out of his trailer. And then uh, Brando doesn't want to come out of his trailer. So they're having like this uh, Mexican standoff of who's going to come out of the trailer first because nobody wants to come out of the trailer. You know, really, really nightmare scenarios that you hear about, you know, of of prima donnas, you know, Hollywood prima donnas, you know, on massive, massive ego trips. And eventually the movie gets released 
which, uh, you know, most of us know it's a pretty big flop. Uh, however, we later find out in the documentary that all of a sudden Richard Stanley, um, you know, becomes – I mean, he was already kind of friends with part of the crew, at least the ones that liked him, not the ones that a lot, a lot of some of them hated him. But um, as they were shooting the movie with Frankenheimer, with Frankenheimer, um, he kind of gets friendly with some of these other crew members, and they kind of bring him to the set. They they help him come to the set dressed up as an extra, wearing a mask, and he actually ends up being in some of the background shots, unbeknownst to the producers of the film. Um, as an extra um, to kind of watch things because he was still pissed off about what had happened to him and he wanted to be there and wanted to see what was happening. And, not, you know, uh, from what I understand, he didn't do anything, you know, anything bad. You know, they were all afraid that he was going to come and, you know, burn the set down or something. Um, but ironically, they, you know, they do mention the whole burn the set down thing. And as one of the things having to do with being an extra, um, there's a scene apparently where he is asked or really close to him they're gonna blow up a building and they asked him to pick up a torch and it's like unbeknownst to them this is the guy they're afraid is gonna burn down the set they're all of a sudden giving him some you know uh, uh, flammable materials to work with but it's it's funny but it's also pretty sad i've seen documentaries like this before where you catalog all the craziness that happens, not only on films that are actually made and, and and the hell that people go through to get these films made, but films that never get made, films that completely fall apart. Well, this one is really interesting because not only is it a film that was made, but it kind of catalogs what happens when a director is fired. And we've seen this type of thing happen many times. I mean, even recently, you know, with Star Wars films, they've gotten rid of like at least three directors already, you know, that were slated to be um, directing certain films. Heck, some of them, like the solo movie, you know, I think they shot about half or three quarters of the movie already when they decided to pull the plug on the directors. So... I strongly recommend this movie. I have heard about this movie for such a long time, and you just have to see it to understand it. Um, it I, I was able to watch it, I believe, on... I'm not sure if it was either Amazon or Netflix. It might have been Amazon, uh, but it is floating around out there. And, you know, unfortunately, this is one of these directors that really did not recover from this. And like I mentioned in the beginning... Um, th- there are so many directors that all of a sudden they become, you know, the Hollywood sweethearts that, you know, next up and coming, next up and coming. And then you do get every now and then these situations where they give a film, or you, you, you know, you get the feeling that they give a film to a complete unknown, um, but they, they, you know, they, they've done something. And, and I guess you have to start somewhere. You know, they can't afford to get top level directors every time. And, just like with actors, you know, they're able to get them cheap because they're unknowns. And and some of them, uh, you imagine, have some kind of good product under their belt so that they can, you know, see the potential of a good director. And this guy had the potential. Uh, uh, but what are the odds? You know, it's just so much of it is talent and so much of it is luck. And so much of it is also bad luck. Um, because yeah, you could have seen this is the type of guy who has a resume, you know, a very small resume that the next thing would have been a little bigger. And then the next thing after that would have been a little bigger. Now his film based on the artwork and the descriptions, it would have been a weird, weird film to begin with, but not the type of thing that ended up going on screen in terms of, 
it's to me it sounds more like the story was more important than the bizarre antics of the actors uh marlon brando unfortunately i have a feeling even if he would have been able to do the film with brando i have a feeling brando would have just overtaken everything because the, the man was a it was a hurricane he was just a hurricane that would just blow into your set and <laughs> it was just like go all over the place especially when he felt like you know that that he wasn't there uh he wasn't um he wasn't getting his way completely, you know, in one way or another. He would just cause havoc everywhere. And you also get that feeling that for different reasons, these two different actors, Kilmer and um, Brando, they were kind of there to mess things up. You know, I, I don't understand why Kilmer in the first place agreed to do this movie. Uh, if he was so much of an ass about you know, being so demanding about the specific things he wanted. Um, and, and maybe it was because he was in the same room with Brando and he wanted to out-Brando Brando. Who the hell knows? It's all ancient history by now. But um, if you like, again, these kind of... There's not a lot of them, but there are some out there. You, I mean, like, I remember the uh, Jarawaski's Dune, uh, the, 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 the original um, uh, version that was going to be done uh, of, the, of the, you know, for the movie Dune. There is a absolutely amazing documentary out there that kind of came around came out around the same time i think i could be wrong maybe a little earlier but yeah it's a fantastic documentary about how all this pre-production all this artwork all the the director was again one of these artistic kind of out of his mind type of characters and how the whole thing just kind of fell apart and it went its own different way and all the players of dune a lot of them ended up doing alien and then by the time dune got really done it was done in completely different different director different style different everything and it was not the huge monster hit that they were hoping you know this would be like the next star wars or something but here's another you know example of these crazy crazy stories that's uh, you know behind the scene movie making strongly strongly recommend this film the other film that I want to talk about is Mother. This is a film by Darren Aronofsky. So off the bat, you kind of can tell that this is not going to be your typical film, your typical straight kind of story, you know, filmmaking. If you know Darren Aronofsky, and let me give you a little bit of his background, he did Pi, his first film, then Requiem for a Dream, one of these holy crap kind of films. Let's see, The Fountain, The Wrestler. The Wrestler might be one of his most straight films ever. Black Swan, which kind of, ooh, weird film. Noah, which he did the Noah's Ark fable story, depending on how you see it. And most recently, Mother. So I knew a little bit about this film before seeing it. I saw it a week or so ago, a little, not too long ago. I think I saw it maybe around either the day of or the day after Easter. So I remember... Uh, how it kind of like, wow, this kind of is very interesting watching this film around this time. What little I knew about the film was that it was a high-profile film in terms of the stars. You have Jennifer Lawrence, you have Javier Bardem, you have Ed Harris, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. You know, lots of pretty known, solid Hollywood names. And what I understood from the film was that it was kind of like a, like a suspense horror kind of theme, let's say. The trailer was very, very creepy. I didn't get any major review details when the movie first came out, but I do remember it being very polarizing in terms of being perceived as somewhat of an art film and some people having a very, very negative reaction to it, especially if you're very religious, let's say. So 
again, you know, when it came out, I didn't have time to see it. Didn't really interest me that much in terms of actually going to the movies and seeing it. I figured I'd wait for video, which is what I ended up doing. I recently got it Blu-ray through Netflix. And going into the film, again, by watching the trailer, uh, even originally, I got this weird Rosemary's Baby kind of vibe to it in terms of weird people that your husband is friends with that trying to convince you of something, let's say. That's the kind of feeling I got just from the trailer alone. So that's kind of how I stepped into this film. Now, the film, let me give you, hopefully, a very brief synopsis of it. It's two major characters. One of them is referred to as her all the time. They never really give each other formal names. So her is Jennifer Lawrence. The creator, because he's a writer, is Javier Bardem. And then you have other people that kind of join in the movie as the movie progresses. That Harris, like I mentioned before, Michelle Pfeiffer, he's just a man that's visiting. And so is her. And there's a lot of other people that visit this house. The whole movie takes place basically on the house that they live in. But the movie starts off really bizarre. The movie starts off with what appears to be the the end of a, a giant fire that takes place in this house. And you see the eyes of a woman, and all around her eyes you see that it's been burned up, that she's been burned up in the fire, but her eyes are still open. And out of that fire you see a kind of like a like a sparkling super diamond that comes out of this fire, and then a man's hands place it on a mantle in a house, which appears to be the same house, because as we're watching this take place, the house is all of a sudden being restored. It goes from being a decrepit, you know, charred environment to a pretty nice looking restored home and the crystal this diamond gets placed on the mantle in the, what appears to be the man's study or his office and the movie begins as the woman wakes up and we got to kind of see the relationship that she has with her husband i believe it's her husband so He's a writer, she's like a, let's say, a stay-at-home wife, and her major function is to restore the house. She's been working on restoring this house because apparently there's a history that there was a fire in this house, and, and she's been working, you know, room by room and fixing things and repainting and reconstructing, while he is a writer who apparently is suffering from writer's block. But he seems to love her very much, they seem to be very good. And then out of the blue, the writer, you know, he comes back from being outdoors or something like that. And he brings with him a man that he found who either hurt himself or something was wrong with him. So he brought him in and the man happens to be a big fan of this writer. But the man is a little obtrusive about things. You know, he kind of wants to see the house and how things work and this and that. And she just doesn't, He's not. she's not too crazy about him. But because the husband is reacting so well to him, you know, he's being so generous to this man. Uh, you know, she kind of lets him, the guy tries to smoke in the house, and she doesn't want him to smoke in the house. So he, you can tell that there's something just not right, you know, about this. So at one point, the man even says, you know, he's a big fan of the, of the, yeah, he actually did not just wander into the house. He knew that this is where the guy lived, and he wanted to meet him because he was such a big fan of his writings and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then at one point, the his wife shows up. It's like, oh, okay. Now his wife is even more weird than the husband she's kind of nasty at times and gossipy and and nosy and you know all these things that you you just you don't like this woman (laughs) basically 
and they get to a point where they she the you know the the, the wife is getting more and more annoyed at at these two people and uh, they keep wanting to go into his office and they say no that the office is out of you know you can't go in there that's his private place you don't go in there that's the that's his study you know that's where he works uh, but then at one point they go in there and they start messing around with that crystal that he has and they shatter it they drop it accidentally and shatter it so she kind of loses it at that point and he gets very upset but at the same time you know he doesn't want to be too mean about it because they have nowhere to go so okay fine um everything kind of settles a little bit and we get to a point where later on their kids come to visit so it's like now you have two more people in the mix now and she's like really getting annoyed now while all this is happening we start to get these weird things about the house where she can kind of feel like a heartbeat behind the wall. She gets these illnesses every now and then that she kind of loses and has to go to the bathroom to kind of fix herself up because she's looks like she's going to pass out or something. So the kids come, and they're older, obviously. One of them is played by uh, Gleason, the, the guy, uh, what's his name, um, from um, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and Ex Machina. You know, he's one of the kids. And the kids are constantly fighting to the point where one of them starts to get into a fight, an actual fist fight with the other kid, and knocks him out with a, I think he, he uses like a, a door, a broken door handle or something, and knocks him out and kills him. Now they have a dead kid and they have a, another kid. He just runs away because of what he just did. So again, everybody leaves the house. Uh, husband takes uh, this family to the doctor and the kid and everybody and... When they return, uh, it's too late, you know, kid's dead, uh, there's nothing they can do. Uh, so she's thinking, okay, great, now, you know, they're, they're gone, they're finally gone. But no, now the, the friends come because they're having a, uh, a funeral, uh, like a wake type of thing. Uh, they're having a wake. So more people come into the house, and she's, again, more annoyed and more annoyed. And some of them are getting really out of control in terms of being so nosy, and they're in every room, and they're trying to go in every place, and the kitchen, and the bathroom, everywhere they go, to a point where even they, they repeatedly, they're told, don't sit on that sink, it's not ready yet, it's not settled, I think, she said, or whatever, it's not stabilized. They sit on it, they break the pipes, water everywhere, you know, the house is flooding, and they have to stop everything, and... Again, things calm down for a while, and they're able to get rid of everybody once again. And, you know, she's very upset at him because he keeps inviting these people in that he doesn't know. But, you know, and his reasoning is always that, you know, they love me, I appreciate them, they love my work, you know, I, I cannot turn them away because it, it, these are, you know, they're, they're your fans, basically, you know, they, they're here for you, for me, you know, for, for the writer. And, uh, she gets to a point where she's just like had it. She's like, you know what, you know, we don't have children and and this and that and the other and you don't you don't sleep with me anymore and blah blah blah. So all of a sudden they go to the bedroom and it's implied and pretty much understood that she's pregnant, which is something that had, hasn't happened yet, which is something that apparently he kind of has been kind of not wanting to go down that route, you know, as part of whatever relationship they have. So time passes, and you know he just like when the this first couple had arrived, he got this inspiration for writing. You know he was part of the reason he was telling her that he was kind of keeping, letting them stay at the house was because he was being inspired by all the little weird stories that this guy had and whatever. So he's you know he was starting to write again. Uh, well now he goes to this other 
you know, period of not writing too much. But now he seems to be inspired again by the fact that he's going to have a child and his wife, you know, she's continued to work on the house and keep, continues to fix things and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you get a whole bunch of people coming that have nothing to do with the first group. These are just complete strangers that are here because they, they've heard that he's writing again and they all want to, you know, want to know about his writing and what he's doing and how he's doing it and what a great guy he is and blah, blah, blah. And this is where the movie kind of starts to go really bizarre. So in other words, up to this point, we have what you could consider to be an acceptable narrative in terms of, all right, things are weird, things are weird, things are weird, things are weird. But now things get super weird. And by that, I mean things are start to happen that you really understand that you're not seeing a straight, straight narrative here. You're seeing, like I said before, it's more of an art film. So as the house gets more crowded with people and more people and more people, fights break out, certain groups are carrying pictures of him around and idolizing him in terms of, you know, he's the best writer ever, you know, and then other groups seem to have other points of view of of how good he is and they're fighting amongst themselves they're fighting uh, with the house even they're like tearing pieces of the house apart uh, because they want to uh, have something that belongs to the writer you know something to remind them of the writer there's all kinds of visual imagery of riots and executions and murders and fights and police and people and all kinds of mayhem happening throughout the house. And she's really, you know, fully ready to deliver at this point. So at one point, she's even grabbed by some of these groups. She's beat up and smacked around and punched and thrown around. And he finally finds her and is able to kind of grab her and bring her into a room, you know, for safety. While all this insane things are happening, you know, all around them. And she delivers the baby. So when she delivers the baby, everything seems to kind of settle in the house. Things go kind of quiet. All the craziness seems, all the fighting seems to kind of stop a little bit. And, you know, he's super happy. She's super happy. But he kind of waits until she finally falls asleep because she doesn't want to fall asleep because she's still concerned that, you know, everybody wants to see the baby, apparently. (laughs) So, and she doesn't want to let them in. And he's kind of, well, you know, we have to show him the baby because, you know, you know, they're here to see him too. They're here to see me. They're here to see you. You know, so he's still on this mantra of being open to everyone and accepting. No matter how crazy these people get, he's always accepting people. Now, I've warned you enough that this this is a serious, <laughs> serious artsy film. At this point in the movie, which is towards the end, she falls asleep. So he takes the baby and brings it to the people outside. And he's showing, the and everybody's admiring the baby, and they all want to touch the baby, and the baby this, the baby that, and, uh, and you know, she wakes up, and she starts to see that, and she's concerned, and she's like, oh, my God, what's going on? He, he took the baby out. This is not good. And then all of a sudden, you hear the people are touching. The, you don't see the baby, but you see that the baby's being passed around, kind of like for everybody to touch and whatever. And at some point, you hear this snapping sound, as if somebody most likely broke the baby's neck and everybody goes nuts and the fighting starts again and things get even weirder and weirder and weirder and at some point you see some of these people are what appears to be eating the baby so again this is where you kind of step back and go what 
the hell is happening here? What am I watching? What could possibly this be about? Because I was expecting this to turn, you know, into, again, a Rosemary's Baby type of thing, where even though you're dealing with a horrific outcome or situation, it's still grounded in some reality. But here, you know, at a certain point in this film, you know you're not there anymore. You're just not there. This is a whole other thing that's happening here. So towards the end of the movie, she's completely heartbroken and and she, and he's also heartbroken because of what happened to the baby and he but at the same time he's still trustful of these people and, and caring and understanding and you're like oh my god what's wrong with this guy uh, so she makes a run for the basement where the boiler and the i guess the oil tank for the for the house is and she sets it all on fire and blows everything to hell <laughs> basically destroying killing everyone uh, except him. He does not get hurt in this fire. She gets completely charred, but she's still kind of almost alive. You could kind of still see her eyes, similar to in the beginning of the movie, where you saw the eyes of a woman all burned up. And uh, he, he carries her out of the house. The house is in flames. He carries her. Uh, she's completely burned. She's dying. And I think, I don't exactly remember the words, but at some point he kind of asks her that he, he wants one more thing from her. He wants her heart. And he kind of reaches into her chest and takes out her heart that's also charred, pretty much like she is. But inside the charring heart, there's a diamond. So he takes the diamond and places it on a stand in what appears to be a brand new house that's being refixed, repaired, repainted, everything just like the beginning of the movie. And a woman wakes up out of bed just like she did in the beginning, and looks completely different than Jennifer Lawrence. So, we watched this film, I watched this film, my wife was kind of watching from the side, and she was just freaking out at some point, especially towards the end when all of the mayhem and the dead baby and all that other stuff, and it took a while, but by the end of the movie, I'm like, at some point, I started to to feel that it was all an allegory for like the house being uh, the body of somebody, and these things that are happening are things that are happening to a person um, that are making them sick. Let's put it that way, because of the fact that she kept touching the walls, and you could kind of see almost like a heartbeat inside. And they show you these weird, you know, the house seems to be reacting to the things that are happening around it. So that's that was one of my earlier theories while I was watching the film. You know, kind of through the middle. But then by the end, you know, again, when you start to think about who this director is and what kind of movies he's done in the past, especially, I would say, with The Fountain and Noah, he's doing a religious allegory here. And if you watch some of his interviews, uh, you know, eventually he kind of talks about how that's how this movie works. This movie is basically the woman is nature, mother nature. The house is the earth. So those two are connected. The earth and mother nature are connected. They're intertwined. And the creator, the writer, is God or a God or some sort of a God, depending on, you know, your religious beliefs. Obviously, he's kind of following um, Christian, you know, Judeo-Christian type of a motif here. So basically, what's what's the way that you, ex you, you kind of put the movie together is that, you know, at first you have... God, the earth, and and and, and uh, Mother Nature, let's say, and man is brought into this. And 
God cannot help himself, the writer, to always be open to his creation, that is man. And the man and the woman are supposed to be Adam and Eve. So they're kind of uh, so, so invited, but then they kind of take advantage of the situation that they're in. Like in the house, all of a sudden they break that diamond, which I guess is kind of a reference to uh, stealing the apple, let's say, from that story. Then you have his descendants that are fighting over his inheritance, more or less. And uh, the kids, obviously, this is Cain and Abel. One kid kills the other kid. Okay, there we go. There's that connection. Then you have all the people that come afterwards and all the problems that come with so many people in so many different places uh, to the point where the house breaks down and it's flooded. So you could say that could be the story of Noah and the flood. And that kind of resets everything. And that kind of initial ability to write that he had when the, after the man came to the house could be considered the Old Testament. You know, all those older kind of stories. Then he goes through a period of non-writing. And the thing that brings him out of this non-writing is he has a son that's coming. A son that was going to be born that is going to kind of rejuvenate his his life, obviously, and his, his wife's life. So everybody... Now, keep in mind that it's not exactly... Uh, very, uh, you know, in time order, some of these things, you can't just say, well, but but Jesus was born before that, so how could it be the last part of the movie? It's the last part of the movie because it's very appropriate at the end, you know, to be a devastating event. But you're kind of following this this allegory. It's all an allegory. Uh, so, yeah, the, you know, the child is born. God wants to share him with the world. The writer wants to share this child with the world. The world, again, goes completely nuts. They do the thing they always do, and that is uh, they interpret him in 10 different ways. They do all these crazy things, fighting, wars, riots, you know, all kinds of uh, evil things take place by the way that they react. But what they do here is they take it a step further and they say, okay, at this point now, we have Mother Nature, let's say, pulling the plug on the whole thing and saying, screw it, you guys screwed up, I'm killing all of you. Uh, so you could kind of say that could be somewhat of a, uh, a climate change or a global warming type of thing where you destroy the earth. You basically destroy the earth. You've polluted it so much that the earth is just broken and you it's irreparable. However... Because of the way this movie begins and the way the movie ends, it opens it up to yet another possibility of the fact that what the director is kind of saying here, it's implied, I assume, you know, based on the movie, that this has happened before and it will happen again. I know it's a little bit of a uh, Battlestar Galactica kind of thing, but yeah, in the beginning, Mother Nature was different looking. The Earth looked kind of the same, but the same creator was there. So it looked as if this has been done before and it probably failed exactly the same way, but he keeps repeating it and repeating it because he wants to get it right. And at the end of this movie, it fails. The whole plan fails. The whole lifestyle they have failed because of man's greed, violence streaks, insanity, whatever you want to call it. And he is renewing it again. He has that power, uh, which is a bigger power than obviously Earth and Mother Nature. 
So he's resetting that clock again, and now he's using a different Mother Nature, let's say. So could this be a, a different planets? He tries this experiment on different planets throughout whatever would be considered to be history. Is he trying it uh, multidimensional? In other words, because the house always looks the same, does that mean it's the same Earth? So if it's the same Earth, the same Earth could only exist in between dimensions. Who knows? Maybe. Or, or is it uh, different planets, different turns? It's your turn now. We'll go to another planet, another solar system. We try again this whole thing, see how it works out, and then we move on to another one. You know. So this is a rightfully a very difficult film to take in and to analyze just as, a, as what you see. This has other meanings, and the director says it has other meanings, and they're there, and it's for you to make those connections. It's, again, one of these films that gives you homework. It's not simple. It's not Marvel. It's not, uh, uh, you know, Pixar. <laughs> this is, it's an art film. This is an artsy kind of director. And I like the film. I, I, I honestly don't know if I could watch it a second time because it is kind of strong in terms of, oh, I don't want to go through that again. But it is interesting uh, to, to be able to pick all the little clues, all the little allegories that are, you know, kind of attaching themselves to other religiously historical events, let's say, and, 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 the, and the commentary that the director is making based on these events. There's a lot of stuff there. And there's a lot of stuff I still don't understand in terms of there are scenes where she goes into the bathroom and drinks this yellow liquid. And that kind of brings her back into calming. And, and because she feels like it's almost like she's going to have a seizure or die or something. And then she kind of, it's like a medicine. So I'm still trying to figure out what is the, this, this medicine she takes every now and then that at a certain point she just stops taking because she, I guess she starts to feel really well. But in terms of the the allegory, I wonder what this medicine is. You know, is it people behaving themselves in a proper manner? That's that medicine. You know, people actually caring about what they're doing to each other and what they're doing to the earth. Possible? I don't know. I understand why, obviously, religious groups would have a complete hissy fit over this film. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's there. So, um, you know... This is more for, I'd say, for film fans. You, you, if you're a heavily religious person, you know, just steer away from this. You, you're not, if it doesn't fit your dogma, just go and watch something else. There's plenty of other... Passion of the Christ is still out there. You can watch that a million times. I could only watch it once because it was just such a strong film. But yeah, this is a, this is a very interesting film. And I think the way to approach it is that you have to think of it as a horror film walk into it as a horror film because it does that's what the director even says it's a, it's a horror film walk into it as a horror film and the progression of the film is a horror film it's a it's like a haunted house uh, kind of film like again like a the rosemary's baby kind of film you know look at it that way and let the movie kind of seep in and after you're done with the shock element of the movie then start to try to see where it connects. There are other theories out there, possibly unintentional theories, that you could also make connections to. Some people say, well, it's about women. It's about the way women are treated. You know, okay, you can kind of make those connections, but obviously, you know, the, the director's vision supersedes anything. So it is very interesting, and it's one of these movies that, I, like I said, I'm still trying to figure out certain aspects of it, and I do recommend this film. You can collect them all! You are a toy! Battery's not included. This is ghetto.
those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For our collectible segment today, we are going to talk about a specific doll, if you will, because it's not really an action figure. It's a doll. It's a 12-inch doll from Indiana Jones, specifically Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm talking about the original 12-inch Kenner Indiana Jones figure, 12-inch doll. This is a figure, or a doll, if you will, that I owned a very long time ago. After the movie came out and after they started merchandising the film, not only did I collect some of the action figures, but at one point they put out this 12-inch doll. Now, I wasn't a very big collector of any kind of 12-inch series dolls. Because I was a huge Star Wars collector, I focused mainly on the three and three-quarter line. I knew that they had larger size dolls or figures, if you will. But for Star Wars, I kind of stayed away from them. I kind of focused whatever little resources I had on the action figure line. However, I did dip into the doll size market only once before or around that time. And that I'm talking about Buck Rogers in the 25th century, the television show. Buck Rogers had put out a, a series of dolls, again, to kind of go along with their three and three quarter line, their smaller line. For some reason, I completely bypassed the smaller line. And I don't know exactly why or how I purchased a Buck Rogers 12 inch figure, which was a pretty very good looking figure. You know, the costume was pretty good. The gun was amazing. Uh, the likeness was pretty good. And I remember to this day that at some point I would regret ever getting into Star Wars action figures and saying to myself, well, why didn't I just, instead of spending all this money on action figures, I could have had these bigger, more detailed, greater quality dolls. And maybe this was around the time when Star Wars was over. I don't know exactly why or how, but luckily that that phase came and went very fast. So the only other large size doll that I owned at the time was the Indiana Jones doll. Again, I did have a few of the uh, action figures, but the doll, for some reason, it was just great. The doll comes in this big, big package, you know, with an extended flap on the side and makes the package look twice as big. But I believe they shape the package in a way so that nowadays, I believe what they used to do with Hasbro, for example, is that there would be a flap in the front so you could open it almost like a like a box, like a like a coffin almost, where you can open it and you see the figure inside and then you close it. Well, back then, they I don't think they were opening closing mechanisms on the box. It was just a box with an extended flap. And the way that it would work, I think, is when they package these on boxes, you would kind of alternate them so they would kind of fit snugly together, you know, without having to lose any space inside the box. But anyway, I obviously, when I bought these toys, I would chuck all the uh, material out, you know, the box, everything. I, and I still kind of do that for stuff that I open. If I Obviously, if I don't open stuff, I keep it closed nowadays. But anyway, I, I, I had this doll, and 
It used to be really, really cool because it was the perfect size. The likeness was pretty good. It wasn't exactly perfect, but it was pretty good. And little did I realize at the time, not, you know, I didn't find out until way, way, way later that because Kenner had done all the Star Wars toys, the mold for Harrison Ford was basically reused from Star Wars. So they took the body and the head of Star Wars, Han Solo, and they just basically redressed it as Indiana Jones. The only minor change that they did, from what I understand, is because I don't own one, is that Han Solo comes with, I think, brown eyes. Indy comes with blue eyes. So the only change that they did was the eyes. The hair is the same. I mean, it's molded, obviously plastic, which kind of gives it away a little bit that that is not the haircut that... Indiana Jones has. In other words, the Indiana Jones doll still retains the Han Solo haircut, which is kind of like a 70s kind of cut. You know, not extreme 70s, but, you know, if you put a picture of Han Solo and Indiana Jones without his hat, you notice that there is a different hairstyle. But that's okay. No big deal. The point of everything here is the fact that it's a pretty well-made doll, and they were able to dress it pretty good, too. The indie doll has, you know, that tan shirt that he wears underneath, the cocky pants, the boots, the shoes he's wearing, the leather jacket, which is a great replica of what his leather jacket would look like, a leather belt, a holster, a loop on the belt. The holster has a gun, which is his traditional gun, not the more... Now, I'm not a gun expert, but the gun that comes with him is more of a revolver. The other one that you see in the movie is more of an automatic, the one that he kind of throws into his suitcase as he's getting ready to leave his house. But anyway, the one that comes with this is the revolver. He also comes with a whip, a cloth whip for the 12-inch size, and he also comes with a hat. Now, let's talk about the accessories a little bit. Everything, I think, is excellent, the way that it's manufactured, the way it looks, you know, given the size of this figure and given the fact that we're not dealing with Sideshow or Gentle Giant, one of these more modern, you know, super sculpted. This is 1982, possibly, 81. So, you know, you're dealing with something of the time that is top of the line, as far as I'm concerned, except for the hat. The hat... I don't understand how or why they were not able to manufacture a credible-looking hat. The kind of hat that's included in this package is a very wide, soft, floppy, furly kind of hat. It would never retain the shape of a fedora hat, which is the one that you see in the pictures. And for some reason, that's what was included. And as you can see, uh, you know, if you look at the commercial, the commercial, they really, I think they messed with that hat a little bit. It might be the same one, but I think they stiffened it. They put probably wire in it or something to make it perfectly straight because it is just a mess of a hat. It is so ugly. And I remember I would always kind of get rid of the hat if I was playing with this at all because the hat just killed it. It was just so awfully bad. I cannot understand how that got past anybody. Uh, now, I understand they want him to make 
a cloth hat to make it more realistic so it kind of goes along, you know, with the rest of the outfit because the rest of the outfit is, you know, real cloth. I mean, except for the shoes, the shoes are rubber, but again, again, you know, you know, I don't expect to, you know, them to manufacture miniature leather boots or miniature leather shoes or anything like that. But the hat is so iconic, you know, that to let it slip in that way, I don't see how they would not opt to uh, maybe make it out of plastic uh, make it out of something, even out of rubber. Yeah, granted that because he has a, a rubber head and a, pl- uh, you know, a rubber hair, it, it would have to be something that is molded around that shape. So maybe that's part of the problem. Um, with cloth, you don't have to mold. You just kind of sew it and bloop, plops in there. But this is something that is in desperate need of a better hat. Now, for its time, we're also dealing with Five points of articulation, you know, no, you don't get elbows, knees, or wrists, or ankles, or anything like that. So, he has a pretty basic action moves. And somehow, and I'm not sure where I got this from, which drives me crazy, the fact that I can't even remember. I also had a horse, a white horse, so I can kind of replicate that scene of him riding the white horse in, in Raiders. The horse was definitely not a Raiders horse. I have no clue where I got that horse. However, it was in proportion to the 12-inch doll, maybe a tiny little bit smaller than what it should have been. But I remember I used to always kind of display Indy sitting on top of the horse. Granted, like I said before, because you have no knee articulation, you can't really replicate, you know, the the sitting on a horse stand. So he would kind of sit there with his legs apart, but it would, it work. It pretty much worked the horse. Again, I I wish I could, you know, I'm going to try to do some research to see where the heck I had that horse. Where did it come from? You know, it was 1981, 82. Maybe it was a Lone Ranger or maybe it was, uh, I have no clue what, what line that horse came from. It had a saddle and everything I remember. So I'm like, I don't know. Well, this was, it as far as the line went the action figure line as you know we talked about it earlier only got through maybe one or two waves then it quickly died but the 12 inch line never became a line it was a one shot the only manufactured one and that was it uh, don't know if they ever had plans on going forward obviously if you make money with something else they might have gone forward but no 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 luck on that that, that was the only one and i remember the just Again, how well made it was. In other words, how good the likenesses were. Because the likenesses are, the likenesses is what really makes or breaks something. And when it comes to human likenesses, you know, I mentioned it, you know, many, many times when we talk about Star Wars that even though, you know, the quality of the figures back then were somewhat primitive in a way compared to what we see today, obviously. But creatures and droids were always dead on perfect. Humans, eh, a little harder to get the actual look of the person. But, and even in Star Wars, you know, like I said, in the action figures, you had the, the, the giant head Han Solo that looked nothing like Han Solo. It barely looked human. And then the tiny head Han Solo, again, none of them really looked like him. They didn't have the technology back then to be able to create such a good likeness like they do these days sometimes. However... With this larger line, with the 12-inch line, Star Wars got it a little close. They were much, much closer. Uh, not only with the Harrison Ford, but Carrie Fisher's face was pretty good. Um, Mark Hamill's face was pretty... You know, all the other characters in the larger scale, I guess it's easier to sculpt and to create these details. 
But uh, I, I remember that's one of the things that make this character always stand out. It was that it was just such a good quality. So as I usually describe in my stories of these older toys that I had, when the dark times occurred <laughs> and I moved away from the apartment building and left behind that damn plastic football container full of all of my Star Wars large size toys and and other peripherals and other things. Unfortunately, Indy and probably the horse was was part of that box full of stuff. So for years, I've been bitching and moaning about it. And I will, as I have explained many, many times until the day of my death, I will bitch and moan about whatever happened to that stuff. And I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, however long it was, when I started to kind of reconstitute my collection. It's probably been almost 20 years ago, I think. Um, I started basically with Star Wars figures, you know, and I'm still working on it. You know, I'm still not complete yet. I am complete, I think, in what I owned as far as the figures go. I'm trying to finish the collection that was never finished in the first place. But with the toys, the fig, the ships, the lo- you know, the playsets, all that kind of stuff, I'm trying every now and then to grab grab a few more items here or there. And I started to kind of go off into some of the offshoot things that I used to have, like my Galactica figures. I started recollecting those and then picking up more. And then I gra- and the same thing with the Indiana Jones figures. Tried to recollect the ones I had and so forth, and then moved on to other Star Trek, uh, my old Clash of Titans, reconstituted those. Buck Rogers, you know, Flash Gordon, you know, all these things. And then I started moving into other categories of things that I used to own. I, I was able to find, finally, after God knows how many years, the V 12-inch figure, which I absolutely love. And uh, guess what? Recently, I found a good deal on eBay for Indy. Now, Indy is a tough one to find on eBay sometimes. I mean, it's there. There's always there. But usually... You're starting off with maybe $50 if you wanted used and plus shipping. There are many boxed ones that are 90, 100, 150, you know, all the way through the hundreds if you want it in pristine condition. But I kind of always kind of stayed away from it. You know, I never really focused on it. But recently I saw one and unfortunately a lot of times you see these and the prices are just so inconsistent. You know, they'll want 50 bucks and he's got no pants or he's missing his shoes or he's missing his jacket. All you have is pants and no shirt. You know, there's always an article of clothing missing. And forget about the accessories. The hats are missing, the gun's missing, the whip's missing, the belt's missing, you know. And sometimes you end up finding some of these accessories that cost almost more than the figure itself. Some people post these ridiculous prices for the accessories. Well, off the bat, when I decided I'm going to try to see if I can find one, I already made a commitment that I wasn't going to go crazy over the hat because I hate that hat. I absolutely despise that hat. It is just god awful. What a bad hat that is. So I ran into one posting on eBay that had what looked to me like just about all the articles of clothing with no accessories listed as coming with it. I mean, you could kind of see there was a belt there, but I wasn't entirely sure. So I was like, you know what? For that price, which was, I think it was about 30 bucks, I think it's worth it. Let's just pull the trigger on this one and 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 just finish it. And then little by little, you know, maybe we'll find the accessories all, or we can um, find some replicas or something that looks like it and yada, 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 whatever. So I placed the order. And it came, 
and it's it's fantastic. It looks, it's an excellent, excellent shape. It's got a minor, minor scuffs here or there. The clothing, the jacket, the pants, the shirt, are in excellent shape. The belt is a little worn. But like I said, I understood that I wasn't going to be getting any accessories because it wasn't, you know, none were listed. So I was showing it to my son and I'm like, yeah, well, I, you know, I gave him the whole spiel. Oh, this is one of the toys I had, blah, blah, blah. And unfortunately, you know, the accessories are not. So I'm, I'm holding the doll because I never really got a good look at it I, to, to really examine it. I haven't really even redressed it. You know, the shirt's tucked out. I haven't really, uh, this weekend, hopefully I'll be able to kind of take it apart a little bit and be able to, to examine it in, in, in much finer detail. So I'm showing him the doll and I'm like, yeah, you know, unfortunately, you know, the, the oh, look at this. They have the, I'm looking at it right now. I'm like, oh, the guy, whoever had it last, they turned the collar up, at least the back of it, to kind of make it, you know, like like the cool-looking leather jacket, like the Fonzie-looking type of thing. Anyway, so I'm looking at it, and I'm like, yeah, I see, and usually the belt. And I turn it over to the other side, and I, and I raise the uh, jacket to see. I'm like, oh, cool, You've, at least the holster's there. You know, I have no accessories. And then I'm looking at the holster, I'm like, but wait a minute, there's a gun in that holster. And it's like, the gun's in it. I'm like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. This is one of the items that is super expensive sometimes, and it's included, and I didn't know about it. So I opened up the listing again, and I'm going through the listing, and I'm like, this apparently came from an estate sale. Uh, so it is possible that whoever owned this or whoever got their hands on it didn't understand. Well, first of all, they didn't know that the gun was included, so they never listed it. They probably figure, yeah, there's a doll, and then boom, throw it in the box, whatever. But most likely, they didn't realize that the gun would increase the value of the um of the figure itself and my bids also i wasn't in a bidding war i think or at least not too high of a bidding war i think i ended up getting like i said i ended up getting it for about 30 bucks plus shipping and i i can guarantee that if the gun was listed or included in the title this thing would have sold for maybe twice as much because like i said the accessories are the things that can drive up the price so by looking at this doll, the only thing that I seem to be missing here is the whip and the hat, of which, couldn't care less about the hat, the whip, I'm going to keep my eyes open on eBay to see if anybody's selling a whip from this particular line to kind of continue it, or I'm going to go to a craft store and see if I can find the materials to kind of simulate what the whip, you know, would look like for this doll. Because I remember, and from seeing pictures, it's a very simple piece of fabric that they use for the for the whip and then a tie they tied off the end and they put a little frilly thing in the tip and it you know it wasn't anything fancy so i'm going to look around also i know that uh more recently maybe in the last uh, again 10 15 years they released another version of the 12 inch one possibly having to do with crystal skull or maybe later disney might have released it a larger version and it, it, it was a little more expensive obviously but it had some cool accessories that if i could find those accessories and bring them over to this doll it would be great a whip would be nice this way i don't have to manufacture one myself the hat the hat that they the more modern hats are way 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 better than this piece of junk that was included with this and the other thing that this does not have is his little bag the little satchel bag that he carries you know that you see the the leather strap around his shoulder inside his jacket that is something that i'm also going to look out for to see if i could find it because it would make a great addition to this figure to have him you know be able to have that bag also there so this is as far as i'm concerned one of my uh, lost holy grail <laughs> ironically enough for indiana jones a kind of items that i lost and i just re 
found and I'm kind of restoring it back to what it used to be. Uh, so that's another one I can check off my list of things. I mean, I owned a lot of other stuff. A lot of it, I couldn't care less about it. But this one was one of those ones that was kind of bothering me of like, damn it, that was a good looking one. And I think as far as 12 inch figures, that is it. My V doll I used to have and now I got it back. And then my Indiana Jones doll, I had it and I have it back. And it's just amazing you know how how nice it is and how it looks and it's part of that whole thing of rebuilding your childhood one step at a time all right i hope you guys enjoyed today's show we went all the way from a documentary called lost soul the doomed journey of richard stanley's island of dr moreau that's a pretty long title there which was a great great doc i love these kind of weird documentaries of you know the behind the scenes craziness that it actually takes to have a movie made uh, there's a few of documentaries like that out there hope you can guys can find some of these and uh, other ones then we went to a completely weird kind of an artsy film called mother by darren aronofsky again this film requires some heavy lifting in terms of you have to think you have to think you have to kind of piece it all together at first it's like a car accident how everything is so crazy and then it slowly starts to seep in as to what the artist is trying to present to you as the audience and i found it enjoyable difficult to watch but enjoyable especially afterwards trying to make sense of it and then we jumped over to our toy segment with my purchasing of an indiana jones 12 inch doll back from 1981 or 82 you know from kenner this was one of the last missing toys that i've had that i finally got my hands on it back you know so happy that i have it and in the particular condition and in the bonus little thing that it included you know that i never realized was there to begin with until i finally got it into my hands and started actually examining what it is that i bought so on behalf of everybody here thanks for listening and we'll see you soon here at Geek Fest Friends. Bye-bye, everybody. I've had enough of this jungle. It's Indiana Jones, a large-size action figure. That boulder's coming in fast. He's new from Kenner's Raiders of the Lost Ark collection. Stay low, Indiana. They're right behind you. Use your whip. Whoa, I'm slipping. Oh, oh. I fixed it. Get me out of here. Snap. Indiana Jones. A large-size action figure from Raiders of the Lost Ark Collection. New from Kenner. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>